Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice monthly, usually, podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, get people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant at Purdue University. And I'm joined today by Carolyn Foley. How are you doing today, Carolyn? Honestly, Stuart, I'm a tiny bit cold, but generally doing well. Thanks. How are you? Uh, I am also good. I'm not that cold right now. My feet are cold, actually. Um, but uh, I think that's just because I have no socks on. And I should have socks. All right, so life advice here, wear socks. Uh, anyway, no, I'm really excited this week, Carolyn, um, because I think we're going to have a fascinating conversation with a couple of researchers from the University of Windsor, actually. Yes, the University of Windsor is a fabulous place in southwestern Ontario. Looking forward to having a conversation about um, how they're uh, working in their lab to um, kind of maybe think a little bit differently about how to do science. Yeah, no, this is really cool. So the, we're going to speak with, um, yeah, her name is Dr. Catherine Fabria and someone else from her lab, uh, Katrina Kishig. And uh, to me, they're, the work they're doing in terms of uh, traditional local ecological knowledge and partnering with indigenous peoples is is really both exciting and, and fascinating and inspirational. And so I'm excited to, to have this conversation. But first, I would like to point out that uh, Dr. Fabria is a researcher, which means it is time for the coveted researcher feature theme. Researcher feature, a feature in which a researcher gonna teach us about the Great Lakes. Our guests today are uh, Dr. Catherine Fabria and Katrina Kishig from the University of Windsor. Uh, Dr. Fabria is the Canada Research Chair in Freshwater Restoration Ecology and Assistant Professor. She's also the Director of the Healthy Headwaters Lab and the Co-Director of the Organic Analysis and Nutrient Lab. Uh, Katrina is the Research Partnership Coordinator and Field Guide and also the Indigenous Partnership Coordinator for FishCast at the Healthy Headwaters Lab. And all of this is within the Great Lakes Institute for Environmental Research at the University of Windsor. Windsor. Uh, Catherine and Katrina, how are y'all today? I'm great. Thanks for inviting us to be here. I'm good. Thanks. Good. We are <laughs> excited to have you. Okay. So, so the whole concept of this is not, of this podcast is, is totally true. I'm completely ignorant when it comes to so many Great Lakes things. Uh, and so I'm going to start. That's very true. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's no joke. <laughs> People think I'm being modest. I am not. Uh, anyway. Uh, but so your group is called the Healthy uh, Headwaters Lab. Okay. So I can roughly figure out what that is, what a headwater is. That's like the source, I think, of a stream or something. But yeah. what is a headwater and, and what do y'all do with those? Yeah, so the headwaters are essentially the source of our streams and rivers, wetlands, and great lakes. It's where water runs off the landscape or from groundwater and comes up to the land and joins larger rivers downstream. These are small streams and rivers, creeks, um, that we call locally. Um, you know, these are the places where a lot of us interact with water. And um, they're also the water, the types of water bodies that end up getting either bulldozed or buried, destroyed or culverted. Um, you know, for every one large river, there's hundreds to thousands of these sort of headwater tributary streams. And so our work just wants to continue to do work to quantify them, understand them and, and really just amplify research in, in those small waterways um, for the benefit of, you know, restoration and conservation. 
And when you're talking about um, headwaters that feed into the Great Lakes, I mean, how far in the Great Lakes region, how far inland in like southern Ontario or throughout um, the Midwestern states or stuff like that, how far do they reach? They reach to the very tips and the edges of our drainage basins. These are, you know, mostly they've been farmed over or they've been buried in urban places. Um, they've been deforested. But, you know, if you look at a Google Earth map, you can almost see a lot of those paleo channels or those historical channels that once used to, you know, where water used to um, gather and, and move downstream. So they're everywhere if you look. So the, the water would gather, so the paleo channels, that means like the, the sort historic, of ancient... Yeah, yeah the historic, historic okay. streams that used to be there. Agriculture so the, development would like bury them over and create new drains or, or streams. Okay, so so it would be like the source would be underground or maybe just a place where a lot of rain or, or snow yeah. melt or whatever gathered. And then... Yeah. And then over time, as people develop the area, either for ag or maybe for, mm -hmm. I don't know, shopping malls, uh, not that those are a thing anymore, um, uh, for kids out there, that's what we used to call the internet. And, um, and so they, uh, and, and so after covering up, like the water just went, the streams, did they like rechannelize or just kind of dry up? What is, what happens to them? Yeah. So, I mean, these small headwater streams are dynamic. They go between being wet and being dry. And, uh, you know, they might, they, we call these hydro periods. So they, this is a normal, um, component of our ecosystem. When water, when it rains, it runs off the landscape into a lower, you know, lower elevations. And, um, when they're when they're wet enough and long enough to hold water, you know, you see these channels form, um, sometimes it's fed by groundwater, you know, and groundwater might come to the surface and together that, you know, forms a stream channel. Um, so, you know, maybe part of the year, a majority of the year, they might be dry. So that might leave, you know, people who are wanting to, if you wanted to farm that landscape or build on that landscape, you might think that it, it doesn't flow and therefore it doesn't exist. But um, like that's where, that's where, you know, land and water and people meet. It's these headwater um, places and spaces. And so what kind of research do you do there? You talked about a little bit, but I mean, so it's, it's primarily biophysical research. Yeah. Um, is it looking at how these have changed as a result of uh, uh, the anthropogenic influence or, or what? Yeah. So I'm, a, I'm an ecologist by training, a freshwater ecologist by training. And my most of it's been over a decade now, but my PhD work was on small headwater streams in the Speed River catchment, which is, you know, runs through the city of Guelph and here in south, uh, southern Ontario. Uh, and, and, you know, my work really started with understanding the connection of all of those things, like how does the presence and absence of water interact with the stream bed, which we call the hyperreic zone, and how does that influence the transport of nutrients, especially carbon, and, and the microbial communities that we rely on to do things like, you know, um, retain nutrients or cycle nutrients, and ultimately that has an influence on the invertebrates and the fish that inhabit these spaces. So it really is an ecologist perspective, thinking about how all of these are connected. Um, so that's the lens I bring to it. So the research we do is to um, understand especially because with, you know, more and more um, human impacts, looking at these places for as spaces for restoration and conservation is really important. Uh, and so in the last decade, I've really brought and tried to center the social part of the ecology we do in, in, in alignment with the, the science that we do, or the natural science that we do. Right. And you said, so um, the space where you are conducting your research is the place where um, I forget how you said it. It was where water and land, land water and, and people meet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so what, who are the people that you are working with mostly? Sure. Like what types of groups are you guys connecting with? 
Uh, so currently in the Great Lakes, a lot of the communities we interact with are local and Indigenous knowledge holders. So the farming community is really big in southwestern Ontario and in our pocket of Essex County, where Windsor is situated. Um, and then ultimately also as, you know, in a Canadian institution and as, you know, an immigrant settler myself, I completely recognize and honor the fact that there have been people that called this place home and have those rights and um, are, are, you know, are traditional knowledge holders and rights holders for this area. So there's so much knowledge and um, I guess responsibility to honoring that, um, that I also, it, really center local communities in the work that I do. So in one sense, um, farmers, uh, settler farmer communities are the ones that are doing a lot of the farming locally, but equally, this is the territorial, the traditional territory of the Three Fires Confederacy. And so I also begin there. That's interesting. So that's a focus that you don't necessarily hear a lot of. Um, in eco- I mean, you know, there's a lot of people who work with traditional ecological knowledge or local ecological mm. knowledge or whatever, but it, it seems like your group really goes out of their way to explicitly incorporate that. Uh, and can you give me examples of, like, how has that influenced your science, do you think? Um, well, I guess, you know, for, for the past five years before, you know, our lab just uh, really beca- became and joined the University of Windsor last year. Um, but for the five years previous to that, I worked with farming communities and local Maori communities in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So I was doing a lot of working on headwater streams, doing restoration, trying to develop actionable science to inform, you know, farmers and communities in general. So that thread of, you know, working with local practitioners on the ground is, you know, completely consistent with restoration and what we need in restoration. Um, And I think when you look at examples around the world and here in Canada of where we've actually, you know, done a good job of restoring streams and river ecosystems, those examples are ones where partnerships between scientists and um, local Indigenous communities uh, are maximized. So, I guess if you just look at the evidence, there's a scientific evidence showing that if you start from the beginning, you know, if you really maximize and benefit um, and really partner and center partnerships in through science, it's more impactful. So there's that one element. Um, And then for me, it just is, it's normal. It's a, it's just a value that I really hold dear and and prioritize through all of the funding and the partnerships that I bring. Um, So it wasn't like we're out to do something different. I think it's just from all ways of dimensions of looking at the problem and wanting to restore fresh water for future generations. Partnering just makes an obvious first step and important step uh, before we do the science. But you, uh, so you talk about partner, but actually y'all, y'all seem to go a few steps farther and within your lab group. And I recommend everybody go to, we'll link to it in the show notes. You should go to Catherine's uh, webpage and look at the really diverse and large lab group that she oversees. In fact, I'd love to talk about how you do that successfully. How do we actually do it? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. I think I spent the first year, um, really, um, just really listening, spending a lot of time meeting with the farming community, meeting with our indigenous community, partnering with people, you know, that I was immediately welcomed by um, uh, like knowledge holders and elders in the community. Um, The person who directs our, the indigenous allyship program, her name's Candy Donaldson. She um, guided me and helped uh, just situate me to the, the social landscape and, and um, the relationship building that I was hoping would happen. Um, And I knew, I think when I started that I just wanted to make a commitment as a scientist to start with the relationships first and understand that context before coming in and 
proposing the best possible hypothesis. I think if we didn't, if I didn't do that job right, then like our science would be less impactful and fail. Um, and so I took the time, um, we were a small team then, it was me and Candy and Jess a year ago. Uh, we took the time to just listen and meet farmers and just, um, you know, meet with, uh, go to Walpole and listen and really try or do our best job to understand, you know, in what way could a group, you know, a science team that looks at headwater systems, you know, wanting to connect land, water, and, you know, in, from an ecological lens, in what way are those skills useful? And so that comes from, you know, just a lot of mentorship and thinking about what, what makes truly impactful science. And one of the ways that I could do that was to actually fund positions for Indigenous scientists to be in our team, to fund farmers to be part of our team, um, and just really think about the social infrastructure that needed to be in place so that I, as a scientist, could play that role. But it was in step and aligned with what um, what the local communities were needing in terms of a science and uh, community. And yeah, so I think in that process, we realized it was important to have a communicator. A so we have a lab storyteller. We have, you know, we've pursued strategic grants that allowed us to align research grants from my lab with, you know, a grant at, that was, that's, um, um, led by our indigenous scholar, Clint Jacobs, that allowed us to hire Kat, you know, that created positions, you know, really just aligning opportunities so that we could all work together. So it was really strategic. Um, and it seems like it's come together. Like, I know it's been a year, but I think that we did spend a lot of time trying to get that, that infrastructure right and the intention right and be very clear about what, you know, what we value and how we roll. Um, and that led to these opportunities. Katrina, what's your background in like your training and expertise? Um, so I'm uh, I'm Anishinaabe from uh, Neashinimming, which is up on the Bruce Peninsula, and I had been working uh, with Parks Canada for almost ten years, doing ecological monitoring um, and some fisheries work, and I saw this job ad for a field guide uh, working with Walpole Island First Nation and the Healthy Headwaters Lab. Um, and Walpole is just this amazing um, environment completely made up of wetlands and, and islands. So I really wanted to a change of scenery. And so I took the job interview almost exactly a year ago uh, and met Catherine and Candy. And it was just it was obvious from the very beginning that it was just a different way of recruiting and a different value system. And yeah, so I joined the team in January um, and my main role was to be working on one of our grants. It's a Canada Nature Fund for Aquatic Species at Risk in partnership with Walpole. And since then, it's kind of bloomed into this... <laughs> Uh, position with many hats and many roles. Um, but our closest uh, partner that we work with is Walpole Island. And my role is to try and identify ways that um, we can work together and really listen to their concerns and their priorities uh, as a community for um, doing environmental research and building capacity within their own community to to address those issues. So I was really fortunate that both Kat and Candy had developed this relationship that I was able to join in on. And yeah, they really invested the time uh, and the energy to 
become not only partners and allies, but friends with a lot of people at Walpole. And I think uh, we've really benefited from that. So, so for, so sorry, for the benefit of Stuart and our listeners, can this, you please, this was um, going to be situate, my question. Yes. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, so can you please situate, um, like tell people, so the Bruce Peninsula, it's, um, it out out into <laughs> yeah, everyone who's listening to this should go and look at pictures of the Bruce Peninsula. It's one of the most magical places on earth. Um, but, um, so can you situ- let people know where Walpole Island is, please? Uh, so Walpole Island is at the um, northern tip of the St. Clair River, just along the Detroit River, about two hours uh, northeast of Windsor. Okay, cool. And uh, so why? So you're doing a lot of work with the communities there. Is this a? Is it a? Uh, is it an indigenous area or who, who yeah. lives there? Why, why so, do we, I mean, why do we care about it? Why do we care? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's, a, I mean, the, if you look at a map, um, what I love when I hear people like Dean Jacobs and Clint Jacobs talk about Walpole Island, they say it's in the heart of the Great Lakes. So it like, it literally is like heart, you know, that heart shaped spot in the Great Lakes and there's a big, yeah. and there's a Delta that's Walpole Island. So it, it's, there's also a ferry that goes to uh, Michigan from that area. Um, and, and, um, it is the traditional, it covers the traditional territory where the university is situated on. So we have, you know, Dr. Dean Jacobs, who heads the heritage center there and works with Clint, who we, um, who's our indigenous scholar, um, you know, they had a relationship with the university to begin with. And that's when I talk about, you know, when I landed here back in Windsor after years, um, abroad, you know, it was candy who has been leading an effort around called in, to indigenize the science curriculum and had been, and she sits on Senate for the Aboriginal Education Council at the university. So there were these relationships that the university was trying to make and had established. And, you know, the, I was welcomed into that network. And, um, and then really it went, it was a process of like continuing to think about and create opportunities together. So it was a real strategic partnership between, you know, um, you know, Candy bringing us in, connecting us with Clint and, you know, one of the immediate things we wanted to do is offer a course that was at Walpole, you know, get students outside of the university and learn from the land. And so there is a traditional ecological knowledge field course. You can find it on our lab website. It's on YouTube. Um, one of the students produced a video about um, it, a short video about that experience. Um, and it was our way to really kind of bring the experience of learning um, a, from about traditional ecological knowledge from those uh, traditional ecological knowledge holders. And then we also had, you know, faculty come and teach us how to learn how to use a drone <laughs> or do biomonitoring, but it was very place-based and it was echo. And, you know, and every time we did a Western science thing, we'd have an elder that came and talked to us. So I think, you know, um, you know, we are so lucky, first of all, to have even recruited someone like Katrina because she's a, obviously a badass. She does so amazing things. <laughs> And the reason why she can wear so many hats is because she's just so talented. And I think we were really pinching ourselves that, you know, if we were, you know, we had this hope that if we could have an authentic partnership, have really clear values, like really be clear about the science that we were wanting to do and the partnerships we wanted to build, that we could attract, you know, some amazing leaders. And, you know, so Katrina is just one of those uh, examples. And in that same vein, you know, if we could pursue grants where someone from, um, well, so none of us are actually from Walpole Island, which I think is amazing that this relationship, you know, you don't have to be from that community 
or indigenous to like do this well or do this right, but be open to learning and building that and investing and building those relationships. Um, So in our team, some of them, some of our our team are from Walpole and like sit in the heritage center or work from home virtually at Walpole and some come to the university. And that's, that's been very much, you know, our way of trying to build a bridge between, um, between our team and the community. What you're describing, Catherine, and you may not phrase it this way, but I, but you're you're this is like a radical reimagining <laughs> of how to do ecological science, isn't it? I mean, this is you have a storyteller, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and uh, I think that's really, frankly, inspiring. And and uh, we're so if if somebody is inspired by this, as you should be, and and uh, what are are there some like you know baby steps that people might take to try to integrate better or be a better ally? Um, uh, uh, to indigenous peoples in their area or incorporated into their science if they're a scientist or, or whatever. Do you have some sort of baby steps that folks might and take? Oh, if I can tag something on to Car- uh, sorry, I'm reading your name. You can edit that out. Okay, so we have a joke that we call Stuart people will say like, hi, Carlton or hi, Carlson or things like that. And I'm looking at his totally did it. Carlton as, so I was like, oh, hey, Carlton. So yeah, so <laughs> Happy U.S. Thanksgiving. So, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you're gonna have to edit. This out. <laughs> Sorry. Alrighty. So, um, so if I could just piggyback on Stuart's question, um, just it sounds like you have a lot of support at the University of Windsor to pursue mm-hmm. these types of um, partnerships, allyships. So, um, when you're talking about the baby steps, if you could give them for people who, even if they don't have that level of support, yeah. are there any kind of okay. Um, Baby steps you can well, suggest. you know, we have that conversation all the time because we even we didn't know what to call what we were doing. You know, is this allyship? What is allyship? So I think, you know, on our lab website, we actually have a page called the Indigenous Allyship Program. Um, and there are some resources that we've accessed and we are continually sharing resources amongst us to just kind of, again, revisit what is it that we're doing? What is our intention? So that's a first step. There's lots of resources out there. We've put a few on our website. Um, and so that's one way as an individual that we can start to grow and learn. We also talk about, you know, having people as a first start. There's lots of resources out there, including understanding whose land are you on. So there are websites. I think Native Land is one of them that we um, direct people to to figure out if you just want to know what treaties, you know, are, you know, that apply to the places that you're. There's lots of little things like that that we as individuals can do. Um, and then I think as I've continued to you know, navigate the science space, I've had incredible mentors that have showed me what an allyship looks like in action. And so some of it is, you know, the allyship program, I basically got support from the faculty of science in the university when I proposed to them, like, I know they get things like overheads and fees. I also know that the university signs on to these, you know, a dimensions charter for equity, diversity, inclusion, and have these commitments. And I basically asked them to you know, that I had this vision and redirect those fees towards this program um, that can allow us to hire and recruit and retain um, individuals. So in a way, like they're, they basically put their money where their mouth is. I basically ask them, you know, what kind of commitments are you making towards reconciliation of our Indigenous um, community here in Canada? And here's an idea in science, what we could do is create a program that actually centers that and, you know, allows us to make and foster the space for, um, for our Indigenous partners and scientists to lead. And so that's kind of one example that me as a PI that I've decided to do. And, 
you know, and that also equal equally I, that applies to working with local farming communities. I'm doing research on their land that they are, you know, these settler communities are farming and, you know, there's lots of drains that are managed by various superintendents and things like that. And so I decided again to reinvest things like overheads and fees towards hiring a farmer. So I think it's not just about working with only one community and that's what we do. I think we're just very serious about our mission, which is to advance science that will connect land, water, and people that will, you know, ensure fresh water and farming sustainability for future generations. And I know that science is one dimension of, you know, advancing that and achieving that, but, you know, especially in other research teams or mentors and other examples that I have been really, um, either just impressed by or inspired by, you know, seeing real commitments to other types of knowledge being there. It's not just numbers, but stories are a major form of data and knowledge that's transferred across generations. So that obviously means we needed a specialist in storytelling, which is why we have a lab storyteller. And um, yeah, so that those are examples. Hopefully that answers your question. I was really apprehensive about the title Indigenous Allyship Program when I joined because it's you know, that carries a lot of weight to it. And it's um, contentious, depending on who you're speaking to. And so I really um, was conscious of whether we were doing things that lived up to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the biggest uh, commitment that I've seen over my time at the lab is, is time, like time and trust, I think are the most foundational building blocks of that. And I think you lose that a lot with Um, research partnerships because there's strict timelines and there's outputs that are you know required and and sometimes communities first nation communities are notified right before and and then you go in you do the work and you, you create a report and that's you know that's extractive and it doesn't necessarily leave the community with any benefits and so I've noticed just how much time we've set aside to, you know, eat together. We have lunches when possible. Um, Before COVID, we had an open house and um, the labs went to the community a number of times to join in different events. And I think those have really led to the, the relationship that's been formed and, um, and has resulted in us having more and more opportunities to partner together on grants that benefit both the lab and the community. And as Catherine said, you create positions and redirect these, these funds so that that's allyship. It's using your, your position and your influence to, um, to, you know, influence change influence positive change and overcome these barriers. So um, I've definitely seen really good examples of that. Is the funding, do you guys mostly get funding through Canadian sources, like through NSERC and things like that? Because mm-hmm. um, I, I know, I guess I'm, uh, I don't know if anyone from NSF listens to our humble podcast, but hey, <laughs> NSF, um, I think there are a lot of different funding organizations that are talking about uh, ways that they can do things. And I think there's some really creative ways that you oh, just Oh, we mentioned. have lots of funding. Yeah, I guess, you know, yeah. the, a, lot, a lot of our programmatic funding comes from the, you know, the tri-council funding. But, 
you know, our nature fund is like a federal science program. So it's administered through the federal department of fisheries and oceans and a specific call around species at risk. We've received numerous small teaching grants and undergraduate grants that create the position of the lab storyteller and that created the resources for our traditional ecological knowledge course. So it's, we have a diversity of funding schemes and sources that we draw from. Um, and I also, you know, I still continue to have, you know, research connections in Aotearoa and New Zealand. And there's a whole science agency called the, the Biological Heritage National Science Challenge. And they have really done a lot of work around, um, you know, refunding and redirecting science funds. So it's impactful. You can still do blue sky science, but you can still build relationships. If someone's going to be doing research on a species at risk, why not work with the local community to bring the wood that's of interest or the fungus that you're trying to do research on? So I've just sort of seen how if you reorganize, you know, funding, you know, and have these just different sources, it's possible. It's just a matter of, you know, I think, there are examples out there and I'm happy to point people towards those, those examples. It's not just us. Yeah. So one thing, uh, it was interesting, Katrina, when you were talking, you talked about allyship as like a potentially controversial term, but you meant, um, uh, that, uh, you, it was overstating what you're doing that, you know, you, allyship is a really high bar, but I was thinking it's probably controversial on the other end as well. Right. Catherine, like you have to get some blowback from hardcore scientists, you know, uh, mm-hmm. about the work that you're doing. Do you find that people tend to push back against it and say, you know, either against, uh, TE or traditional ecological knowledge or against, you know, uh, the fact that this, I don't know, it, it approaches uh, some definition of advocacy that people might not be comfortable with. Do you hear mm. anything along those lines or is everybody as inspired and fired up as I am? Well, no one's saying it to my face. And if they did, I don't really care because I think the evidence is really clear when it comes to restoration that ecological science has to be informed by social dimensions as well. So I think for people who are really serious about sustainability, there's always a social dimension and I'm constantly reminded. And so I lot my circle is not just a science circle. Um, thankfully I have colleagues who are social scientists and economists or practitioners on the ground. And that, those are, you know, that diversity, um, like those are the people who, you know, in the communities that who are actually stewards of the land who are, you know, they think the I think the evidence is there. It's going to take generations for the kinds of restoration that this planet needs and if we don't partner with our local, you know, stewards of the land and water, I mean, that's the timescale we need to work at. And so that's kind of the impact that I'm thinking about and not necessarily the peer reviewed science. I think, again, the evidence also shows that that's kind of biased. There are paywalls and barriers to accessing that science. And there's a huge need to actually translate that science into practice. I mean, that bridge and that connectivity, I think we talk a lot about in our group. Um, you know, we don't advocate for anything we don't have evidence for, you know, we're not advocating um, for, you know, I think so I think the role that we play is really like that honest broker of science, like here is, we understand the role of partnerships and the role of incorporating social dimensions in the science that we do. But you know, we're not, you know, if you look at our, our at our, at our comms and what we do and the tor- stories we tell, it isn't advocating for things, it really is about telling those stories if we are, if we do have data and science to show, there's a whole, there's a page for that. Um, but I think, you know, uh, for people that really take a minute to think about what we're doing and look at the evidence, and the impact, it is more than just the peer-reviewed paper. But actions on the ground, community relationships, funding that's directed towards that kind of capacity building. So it's a really multi-dimensional, I guess, portfolio of of evidence that we think about because we're really serious about holistic and and, and actual change.
yeah, I'm not sure if other labs are, are talking about the way we do things, but um, one of the things that impressed me the most and that I've shared um, with people since joining the team is just how people are um, accepted for, you know, arriving where they are, at, you know, using different routes and different ways of, of gaining knowledge. And not all of us are, you know, hard science-based um, with masters or PhDs. And um, that was that worked for our lab that gave us, um, a, a greater reach and a greater, um, a, a variety of perspectives to look at things. And I think people look at that and, and the ones that we have spoke with I see that as a, um, a benefit, you know, and we're able to, to look at things with slightly different lenses and there's a growing, um, acceptance and and move toward two-eyed seeing or um, incorporating both Western and Indigenous knowledges um, and valuing them on an equal playing field, not, you know, looking at Indigenous hierarchy (laughs) knowledge as being something, you know, that needs to be proven by Western science, but Mm -hmm. that it has a lot to add um, to our our way of, of knowing. And I think my favorite example, one of our first meetings um, with Clint Jacobs, who's the the manager of the Walpole Island Heritage Center, we were speaking about an invasive plant, uh, Phragmites, and how it's, you know, it's a major concern to the community. It's it's really taken over a lot of um, important habitats and everyone's dealing with it. You know, everyone along the Great Lakes is doing the same thing, um, managing it using chemical and mechanical means and Clint stopped and said that he wanted to they wanted to have a naming ceremony and they thought that was a good first step um, and to give that plant a name and to look at it and ask it why it was there um, and to approach it from from you know that viewpoint like what is that plant there to teach us and I think by adding perspectives like that, then we can look at, you know, a problem that we've been trying to manage for years with this completely new lens. Um, and I think our science will be made better for it. So hopefully people see and appreciate that. But yeah, and as you can imagine, as an ecologist, that speaks to me, because that tells me everything about why is it there? Well, you know, so I start thinking about, well, what is the flow regime? What other species, what species used to be there? What are interactions with, you know, the um, invertebrate or fish communities or bird communities? And and so I've learned so much from the Anishinaabe Moan language about when you actually hear the name that tells you a lot about its ecology. So, you know, it is a very reciprocal relationship and it informs a lot about, you know, so doing, you know, this Phragmites project, we could have easily gone and just like burned and you know, and, you know, cleared it all. But I think we're creating space for the community to help guide, like, you know, what areas would we even, you know, Phragmites might occur as we continue to understand its ecology. You know, there are certain places that used to be important habitats for the community or species at risk. You know, maybe we need to, that's where we want to focus our energy. But again, it is creating the space to um, allow that knowledge to guide uh, that par- that project. And so it's a real privilege to be part of that. And I, you know, I learn a lot from it. And I think this is exactly the kind of way we need to be pursuing restoration and conservation with people who know the land and, you know, understand 
um, and want to be responsible for stewarding um, those landscapes. So I think that's a wonderful example. Katrina, thank you for sharing that. Great. Well, this is very fascinating and inspiring stuff. And I've, I really enjoyed this conversation, but that's actually not why we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes uh, this week. And the reason we actually invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week is to answer these two questions. And the first one is this, if you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which would it be? And uh, This is the question that's going to break our relationship. <laughs> oh. I don't yeah, know. All, questions are, all answers are acceptable. Yeah, but some are more acceptable. So uh, <laughs> don't screw it up. Yeah. I am 100% don't even need to question it, a sandwich person. Sandwich? Really? Yeah. All right, so what what sandwich and where? If I'm in uh, 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 Windsor, I guess, right? If I'm in uh, Windsor, where should I go get a sandwich? um, I haven't explored Windsor's food as much as I would have liked. Um, Oh, right, pandemic. Yeah, most of the year has been. um, And you can still do takeouts, but I struggle with that because of, you know, the styrofoam and everything. Um, In Toronto, my favorite sandwich place was this grilled cheese place in Kensington Market. And you could get gourmet grilled cheese where they would oil the outside of the toast so that it was so crispy. Um, And I usually like an apple or a pear in there, maybe a pesto. So Maybe a pesto. I'm a sandwich person the whole way. (laughs) All right, Catherine, here we go. The moment of truth. Uh, Donut all the way. And you need to go to... And I have the best, the best donut place in Windsor is called Plant Joy. It's a vegan, um, it's a vegan donut bakery. You, you know, in the pandemic, they've still managed to keep open. You can pre-order your donuts. They are incredible. Um, uh, my youngest daughter really likes just the cinnamon sugar one. I think she's just like a, you know, purist, like just likes that. Um, and I don't know. I think I like that. The glaze is great. Uh, the maple one is great. If you can have one of each, also great with a cup of coffee. Yeah. Um, I'm a one of yeah, each kind so. of guy. I'll be honest. <laughs> like, so yeah, I'm easily, you know, there's nothing like a weekend donut coffee. If you can have, a, you know, just with your favorite people on a really nice day, like just that would be great. Followed by Santa with us. Follow by, yeah, I mean, these, these I, interesting that you followed it though. Right. Interesting that you followed it. The nice thing about having two guests is, you know, the question is designed to be mutually exclusive, but different answers mean we're just going on a culinary tour of uh, that part. Yeah. Of Canada. yeah. <laughs> okay. And the second is uh, this. So we like to ask, what is one piece of life advice that you have for our listeners? It can be like big or little, serious or silly, you know, just something they can take home with them. Uh, uh, this has already been a very inspirational interview, in my opinion, but but, you know, let's let's just put the button on the button, the cap on the donut or whatever. Uh, yeah. The butter on the outside of the grilled cheese. The butter, on, <laughs> that's right. the butter oh, on the outside of the grilled cheese. I'll just go back to grilled cheese quickly because a friend just taught me the greatest thing I've heard in a long time. But you melt a little bit of cheese on the outside of the grilled cheese. Oh, to get so the crispiness. Uh-huh. Not going to uh. lie. That's a technique I employ. Oh. Um, here's <laughs> another one. With that. All right. While we're in this, life advice might be out, but here's this, is a thin layer of Dijon mustard on the inside. Not too much. A thin yes. layer. That's a go-to. See, I can get um, behind all of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, my life advice, um, I'll just go with the whole reason that I'm on the show is Catherine asked me if I would join 
And I was like, oh God, no, (laughs) that is not my thing. And then I said, well, I told myself I would say yes to things that scare me this year. So this this year was a yes year and uh, it's led to me doing things that I don't think I would have agreed to in the past. And um, (laughs) they've all turned out fine. So, (laughs) Well, it's very much our game that you said yes to this. Hopefully not in the end that scary thing. (laughs) No, and it never ends up being as scary as as you make it out to be. So I feel like that is the advice I'm going with this year. Um, I don't know that I I can top either, you know, any of those stories. I think the life advice, I guess it's just like, find, find your thing. There's so many things we could be doing. I mean, I've been lecturing uh, to undergraduate students who are living through the pandemic and have lots of little people around me that are, you know, this is their normal. They don't know that there was ever a life that, you know, this didn't exist. And, um, and, and, you know, they look to me and think like, what can we do? And I think the best thing we can do is just like find your purpose and find your thing. And that will attract the people that you want to work with and align with like the work that we've done. It's, it, we, it feels like we've accomplished a lot, but it's gone by really fast. It's come together so well. And I think we've just been really clear about how we roll and what we, and, and we made room and space for all of the ways that you can live a good life. Um, so I'm hoping that like we can all reconnect and it's not by, you know, following or, you know, we can disagree on the donut versus sandwich question, but I think, you know, in general, if people do their thing, find what it is that they love. We all need all of our best selves to deal with whatever comes. Um, and, and I'm just really happy when I see the people that I work with and care about do amazing things. And it's been a pleasure to work with them. Well, I can't find better advice than that. Uh, Dr. Catherine Fabria and Katrina Kishig, both of the Healthy Headwaters Labs at the University of Windsor. Thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Miigwech. Thank you. Chimigwech. Well, that was really inspirational and a whole lot to think about. I uh, I am amazed by everything that they're doing in their lab to try to integrate um, Indigenous peoples. And it really gives you a good idea of what allyship is in this context. Yeah, it was really fantastic. Katrina said, you know, that the, the time and trust issue, um, you know, that that's what it takes. I found that really, really interesting. You know, being at a land-grant university at Purdue, um, you're also, you know, we're also supposed to be trying to bring research and education together in a way that will actually help people and bring in perspectives of the people who are on the ground. Um, but we are also bound by the timelines of the two-year grant and then you're out, right? Um, so I think it would be really awesome if um, funding institutions such as even our own and uh, other um, organizations to sort of start to get behind this idea that, um it's going to take a while to do it right, and it's important for us to do it right. So um, that's something that I found really, really cool. No, that is really, really cool. Something I, I thought I was interested in, and we didn't—I didn't quite have time to get into it. But Catherine talked about how she uses like all of her overhead and fees and things like that um, to to hire a lot of people to be a more active ally. And for those who aren't in academia, what that means is she's basically spending her own budget, money that she could use on on other things to complete research or whatever. And using that instead to, I mean, and she's very passionate clearly about how it helps her research, but I thought that was really notable because that's a significant sacrifice potentially.
actually to make. Um, well, sacrifice might not be the right term, but that's a significant uh, use of resources, I guess would be the way to put it. Right. Yeah. I think it's not sacrifice. I think yep. it's a different way of using resources, um, but, you know, to benefit the work that you're doing. So, yeah, no, I agree. And, and to do what, what's right. Um, and, and so I thought that was yeah, a lot to think about, certainly. Yeah. And I'm also extraordinarily proud of the place I graduated from. Go University of Windsor. I'm not a, always like a rah, rah. Like, yeah. I really enjoyed my time there, but I'm super proud that they are supporting us. Yeah, no kidding. Hey, what's their mascot? We can say go, what are they, the Bears? They're probably the Bears. Go Bears. No, they're the Lancers. The lan- What's a Lancer? It's a person on top of a horse with a lance. Oh, Oh, like, like well, a knight? I, to, be, to be fair, I was there a while ago. Okay. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll link to I will link their to mascot. a Lancer. <laughs> <laughs> well, go Lancers. And um, yeah, anyway, I thought that was, that was good. That was really inspiring. I'm thrilled to have them on. Well, uh, Carolyn, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people go to find out more about Illinois Indiana Sea Grant and the work that we do? Uh, they can go to IIC Grant, S-E-A, G-R-A-N-T dot org, or they can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, YouTube, um, looking for IIC Grant or Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. Maybe less Instagram. Do we have Instagram? We have an Instagram? I believe so. Hmm. Uh, (laughs) It's almost the holidays in 2020. (laughs) That is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, we might have an Instagram. I don't know. I'm anyway. Pretty sure we do. Uh, great. Well, follow us in all those places. Um, and uh, you can find out a lot about the work we do. And until then, everybody stay safe. It's the holiday season. Our next episode will be our first anniversary extravaganza. It might be a couple what weeks. The heck? Huh. We've been doing this for a year. Oh, yes. <laughs> you sound so shocked as if you haven't been planning the extravaganza behind the scenes for two weeks now. Um, yes. yes. That was very, very, very credible. And yes. All right. <laughs> anyway, and uh, and I was totally, I, I played along very well. I wasn't confused and confounded by it. But it may be a couple of weeks. We're having some uh, issues getting certain things together. So it may be a few weeks before you hear us with the holidays and everything like that. But the next episode, first anniversary extravaganza. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a lot of fun and uh, we'll see you in a few weeks. And until then, keep grating those lakes.